But we know because of those statistics that it wears on you. It wears on anybody, uniform or not. Um, you look in the military, same thing. And so uh, what we did first is we started talking about it. And I came in and I told the office that um, we all experience it. We're all human. We all put our pants on the same way, and it is going to wear on us. And that we put so much into our profession that it was my goal and our team's goal that we wanted them to enjoy as much after they retire of all the hard work they've done. And so to do that, we have to start addressing that it's okay to cry. You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Welcome back, everybody, to the Guns and Mental Health Podcast. Hello, Mike Sudini, down in Las Vegas. Hello, Jake. How's it going? I, it's going well, thank you. And up here in Nornev, as we love to call it, we don't really call it that, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm joined by uh, Washoe County Sheriff Darren Balaam. Hello. How are you guys? I'm, I'm awesome. How are you? I'm great. I'm excited for today. By the way, uh, you guys are like both fifth-generation Reno, right? Like, don't you guys have... Yeah. Does your family have history? Uh, I mean, our dads worked together. Yeah, um, they were really good friends, especially mm-hmm. after retirement. But I don't think I don't think we've ever overlooked. Well, you, you're from somewhere Valley. No, no, I'm, I'm from here. But you are. But my dad's from Earrington. My mom's from Smith Valley. So. Oh yeah. Okay. So a yeah. little further south. And for for the listening audience, because we're you know we're proudly national. Uh, if you don't know where Earrington and Smith Valley are, they're a really beautiful part of Nevada. I mean, I think all of Nevada is beautiful, but they're a really beautiful part of Nevada, south of southeast of Reno, and it's a farming company, uh, company farming community, and um, it's very lush. The Walker River flows through there. It's beautiful. There's uh, mountains and uh, campsites. The state of Nevada has done a really good job of. of um, like just kind of reinventing that whole area but uh Earrington is is lovely it's gorgeous it is it is that's where um jokingly all my cousins I'm the the city slicker of the of the (laughs) the cousins and they are all out there and I used to love even now going out and visiting both both areas because they are they're they're beautiful yeah it's um it's a nice it's a nice getaway there are other parts of Nevada that I think are beautiful but other people don't because they're brown that part happens to be green, <laughs> yeah. and uh, it's 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 wonderful. But we're not here to talk about that. Uh, we're here to talk about guns and mental health and any uh, derivation thereof. So, you are sheriff of our county here. There are two major population hubs in Nevada: uh, Reno and Las Vegas. Broadly speaking, Reno is in the Washoe County area, and that's where the city of Sparks is, also. And so, you are the elected official of all, I guess you could say all law enforcement, because they sort of all kind of report to you, even though there's different departments. Mm -hmm. But I would love a lesson on that, first of all, 
for the listening audience. And then also introduce yourself a little bit more than just being the city slicker who escaped your interview. I love it. So a uh, <laughs> little bit about myself. I'll do that, and then I'll, I'll explain the difference between sheriffs and police. So um, been married to my wife 23 years. We, we actually met at the sheriff's office, and kind of like you and I, um, her dad was in law enforcement at the sheriff's office. Uh, we grew up down the street from each other, small town, um, but we wow. never spoke to each other until we started the sheriff's office. Really? Um, and so she retired after just under 20 years at the sheriff's office. Um, we have three wonderful kids, and then I have a fourth. Um, and so two were in college, one's in the air guard, one's still in middle school. Um, and I started my career when I was 20 um, and followed in my father's footsteps uh, into the Washington County Sheriff's Office. And so that's a little bit about uh, myself. I am a fifth generation. Actually, no, sixth and so my kids are seventh, you which is kind of neat. Yeah, so I, I got you by yeah. one. Yeah. But one um, <laughs> very proud about that. And you always can tell that's one thing in Nevada, right, is that's our, our, I guess, our culture. When you meet somebody new, you're like, where are you from? Yeah. And we're proud to say we're you know, born and raised here. <laughs> here. No, really here. Not moved here in 74, like actually from here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so uh, I, I became the sheriff. I'm the 29th sheriff. Uh, of Washoe County, uh, very proud about that. And so the differences uh, between police and the sheriffs are each county, we are constitutional. So in our con- Nevada state constitution, um, it kind of lines out the sheriff and the role of the sheriff. So we have mandates within law. Um, every sheriff, every county has to have a sheriff. Uh, we have to have a search and rescue. So hmm. we're, in, we're responsible for uh, staffing a search and rescue. So if you're lost, stranded, uh, out in the wilderness, the sheriffs in each county have a, a, a team to go out and do that. We have to man bailiffs in district court, except Clark County, because the threshold is 750,000 people, which after this sentence, I think will be right around 500. So we have a couple more years. Um, So I have bailiffs in district court. I have to do civil processing. Um, So all civil processing in the county, you can go privately, but Sheriff's Office does all that. That, that, That's a fingerprints, background checks, that kind of thing? Uh, Evictions, what we call till tap. So if in a court order, um, a company hasn't paid somebody else, we'll go and collect the money for them. Um, So we do all that type of civil processing um, and permits and all of that, CCWs. Uh, then we have to have a detention facility. So we have one here. Other areas may have, you know, the police departments may have their own, but we have one Washoe County detention facility for the whole region. Uh, and then we have to maintain the peace and quell all riots, basically. And that's uh, where we go. And so we're elected every four years. And what I like to say is um, police agencies, we have multiple, uh, you know, the big ones are Reno and Sparks, but then you have Truckee Meadows, you have school police, you have, we have two uh, tribal police agencies. Uh, and then a lot of federal agencies. Uh, but we answer to the people. Unlike the police chiefs that are appointed by uh, their city council, and then they report to a city manager, um, I work with the council. Um, they oversee as far as allocating my budget. But after that, I'm, I, I only answer to the people. And so that's what's really nice. We just did a survey. And so you get to see. And are so you popular? We know. Uh, you know what? I would, I would say we're doing well as a team. Good, good. Um, there's some things we can prove on. Um, but... Overall, I, you know, I've been blessed to have a great team at the sheriff's office. And so that's the biggest difference when I go out is I work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and every four years, that's my evaluation. Um, so if we're not doing well, they'll elect a new sheriff. And so no matter even though city of Reno and Sparks may have a police chief, they're still county residents. They still, which I learned when I was getting into this political process, because I'm not a politician um, before this, is uh, when you'd be walking in the cities, they'd be like, oh, well, 
can I vote for you? And you're like, well, yes, the cities oh, wow. are People in the county. Don't know. They don't know. And so uh, I've really tried to get out there and say, look, you know, I, I answer to you, although you may have a police department, we work well together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have regional task forces together, but I work for you. And so at the end of the day, you, you do every four years report on and let me know how I'm doing. That's amazing how much stuff is in statute that you're yeah. going to do. I didn't realize that. Um, two quick questions. One is, who does the bailiffs in Clark County then? Do the courts themselves do it? The courts themselves now. Okay. And then uh, are you term limited at all? Not term limited. So uh, Sheriff Furlong in Carson City, mm-hmm. I believe he's on his sixth term. Yeah, he's been there a while. He's been I, there, I think he's the, wow. I don't know if he's the longest, but he's close to it, if not the longest serving sheriff right now. Wow. Okay. And so maybe I didn't have two quick questions. What is a metro system? Because Clark County has a metro system, and I've heard that talked about for years up here, and it just it hasn't materialized. But it hasn't. So what that is is they consolidated. So Clark County Sheriff's Office back in I believe it was the mid early seventies uh, consolidated with one of the cities down there to create a metropolitan police department. So uh, again, up here that's one thing. Um, the councils would have to you know right Agreed. now they oversee. Uh, their police department, so they they somewhat control it. The, the the citizens do too, but it's through their council. Where, for me, a commissioner may ask if I would like to come help, but they don't order me to do anything. It's the citizens that do. And mm-hmm. so um, we, even for our dads, they talked about it for the last probably forty years of consolidating up here. Um, overall, you know, my personal opinion is I think it would be a great thing. I think it's more efficient, but. Um, that's the big thing is the commissions and council or the people. I mean, there's multiple ways you could do it. You could have the legislature order it, and that's how Vegas did it. Oh. Uh, you can have the commission council uh, just say we're going to do it like they did the fires about 10, year, 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or you can take it to the vote for the people. And uh, we just have never done it up here. We Again, as you stated, we've, we've talked about it, but um, that's just one thing. That's the difference is they – so Sheriff Lombardo down in Metro – he not only answers to the or you know works with the Clark County Commission, but he also has a council because they pay into that metro model, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so he he will also go to them and give them reports on you know here's what Metro's doing in your your area as well. It was like office space. Like I answer to eight different bosses, Bob. Eight, <laughs> mm-hmm. eight, Bob. <laughs> Mike, you look like you want to jump in. No, I just it's refreshing. It's nice to hear like the sheriff come out and just say I work for the people. Right, because a lot. Of, I think there's a lot of people that that you always see the opposite. You always see someone telling the sheriff or someone telling the the police officer, "You work for me," right? Um, and I think that that's kind of cool that that was what you led with, man. I, I really really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank we, you. We try to avoid. Um, we we talk about politics and political uh, dynamics, but we don't we don't get into political discussion or debate, right? But it sounds like one of the the major hangups on going metro or consolidating is 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 the politics, right? It is. And there's and there's egos involved and so forth. And it is, it is because again, the the metro model we have here in the state down in, in Vegas is again the sheriff's elected, so mm-hmm. the sheriff answers to the people in Clark County and will work. And the council and commission will say, "Here's your budget." And I think his budget this year is one point two billion. Wow! Um, but after that, right then he goes out and he allocates his resources. And works with the staff to address whatever issues they they have down in, in Vegas and working with the Strip. And I mean, you know, he is they they kind of fluctuate down there of the sixth to seventh largest agency in the nation. So I mean, they are a, a very big force. That's pretty wild. Uh, so they have the sixth or seventh big, uh, largest uh, p- 
police department, essentially, and they have the second largest school district in the mm-hmm. country. So don't forget about Nevada, folks. And it is Nevada, not Nevada. Don't put a W in there. There you go. Good. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the specifics of what you've done since you've come into this uh, realm, because it's uh, it's cool it's cool to have elected law enforcement on the show, but we want to here for a purpose, and and one of those purposes is that you have done some really uh, innovative things, and you've started some really cool uh, initiatives within the department itself to try to change culture, but also in the jail, the aforementioned statutorily commanded jail that you run uh, to address mental illness. So uh, I know that's, you know, your wheelhouse, so go for it. Absolutely. So I'll try, if I get a little long-winded, <laughs> let me know. But um, so again, most people don't realize uh, the Washington County Detention Facility is the second largest mental health facility in, the, in our state, Metro's jail being the first largest. It's not a hospital. Um, it's our facilities. Should, pro- should probably explain why that's the case. <laughs> uh, and, and the reason why that's the case is back in the 80s when they started shutting down a lot of the state hospitals, there was nowhere for those clients to go. So what happened is they ended up on the street and they, they you know, may jaywalk. They may go what we call defrauding an innkeeper. Basically, you go, you order a meal, and then you don't pay for it. And so those minor crimes, and some are more severe, but a lot of them are minor crimes, there's nowhere to take them but the county jail. So that's where they end up. And so right now, uh, my count today was uh, 982. Um, and out of that- up, Total inmates. Total inmates. Uh, we can hold up to 1,400. Um, COVID has helped us at least reduce that population. But about 80% of those inmates have some type of mental illness. Either wow. uh, right now, I and I don't have the number for today, but I typically run about 80 to 100 of those inmates of true- mental illness, i.e. they're on heavy psychotropic drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started, I had we had no specific mental health housing unit. Um, about 20 years ago, we created a one housing unit three, and it's specifically for our more challenging mental health inmates. And now we're up to three. Holy um, cow. And so coming in, that was uh, before they had had a lot of deaths. Some of those were because of mental illnesses, i.e. addiction, or they had a mental illness um, and suicides. That's always been an issue at our jail. So um, I had three unfortunate deaths right within the first three months coming in uh, of suicides. Every single one of those inmates, typically, you know, you see when somebody comes and is incarcerated, it's within that first 48 hours that kind of reality sets in. They realize that they're in this constricted environment. Uh, They can't move around freely, and those stress levels are extremely high. And that's Mm -hmm. when the highest potential for suicides or self-harm comes in. All three of these inmates had been there a month to four months. So they they had been past that. One, in fact, actually had his bail reduced from 60,000 to 16,000. But when he made some phone calls to family members, for whatever reason, right, this time they didn't want to bail him out. And so he had made calls to um, his significant other, um, making kind of suicidal statements. Mm-hmm. They did not call us. They were they figured they would try to deal with it themselves. And as, because we have a, uh, an emailing system that inmates can email out, uh, and we intercepted after the investigation, she was emailing him as he jumped off our top tier, because our housing units are two stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a, you know, three foot, handrail that goes around the upper floor. He climbed over that and jumped off head first. Um, and so we, we knew there was a problem. We've known this. We've seen this mental population grow. So we created what's called the detention services unit. 
And so what we did is we put six deputies together. Um, I now have a social worker. I went to our medical provider because we contract all medical um, in our jail to an outside vendor. Right. And I went and I said, we need somebody from your medical side to be in this, in this unit. Mm-hmm. And so now they're in the same office. They sit together. They screen all inmates coming in. And then they work with um, the courts, our service providers on the outside. They identify inmates that may need some help. And then they'll actually go to court now, the deputies or our social worker. Uh, our medical provider gives us a case manager. So he works on setting up the programs to get them in. And they'll go to the judge and say, you know, Your Honor, this person's in for a minor charge. Um, we already have them set up for a program, and we're going to transport them there. And we have them set up for housing or whatever. Mm. Uh, we've had some great success stories. Um, and that was the first step. The second step was we went in and um, identifying the opioid crisis, which in our region, opioids still aren't the number one killer. It's methamphetamine. methamphetamine. Mm-hmm. But we still have a crisis. So we, had, we were one, one signature away, but we, for the most part, are MAT certified. So that's Medical Assisted Treatment Program. So we can start anybody that comes into our facility. We've done it multiple times now. We have about 10 inmates on average right now that are on that this protocol, and we can start them on their detox program with methadone, Vivitrol, or other drugs. And again, we, we will work with the court, so knowing if they're going to get released in a month, we'll start that first shot. So the first month is when they're incarcerated, so we're starting to fix their urges as they get ready and set them up for success. Um, then we went out and we did some programs. Uh, we did what's called walkabouts. So typically in jails, we have a program area. So if we're inmates and we need programs, whether alcohol is anonymous, anger management, or the typical ones we do, narcotics anonymous. Say we're all three in different units, but all of us have different criminal histories. We may not all be able to go because of our classification level Mm -hmm. in the same room at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's a very limited amount. So what the DSU deputies did is they reached out to a lot of our service providers and they said, we want you to come into our facility, and we're going to walk you around to each housing unit, which holds up to 112 inmates. And we're going to not only walk you in, we're going to call the inmates out. We're going to introduce you. We're going to have you explain what your uh, service does, how to access it, and then we will give the applications and collect them and give them to you. I, I just got chills. The audience can't see me. I was grinning and nodding vigorously uh, when you were talking about the mat stuff because that's really, really exciting and out of the box. Um, but that is so cool because yeah. it demystifies. That's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to demystify what service provision is, whether it's counseling or residential hookups or you know job training or whatever it is. So that's that's really incredible. Yeah. So you know, and so they'll work with them. They'll get them all signed up uh, for those that may qualify for SNAP or Medicare. Again, typically the way our rules are written right now is when you come into a detention facility. Uh, we're trying to, in the legislature right now, get it to where it's suspended. But if they find out you're in our facility long enough, they'll terminate your Medicaid, which means now you're uh, oh, the, the lower socioeconomic. You're already facing challenges. You get out of incarceration. Now you got to go sign up for everything. Yeah. So there's that that lump. Well, now we hand those applications out, and we get them signed up. So the minute they walk out of our facility, they're already lined up for that part of the success. Uh, we brought in tablets. So now... Uh, we piloted those with the inmates. They can have tablets in the housing unit, and it has all of our service providers on there, all of their applications on there. We have classes now on there, so we're encouraging if they get sentenced to uh, you know, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcohols Anonymous, whatever it is, they can do it on the iPad in the housing unit. So now I can service a lot more inmates, and we incentivize it. So if That's you complete it, great. 
you get a free movie or you get a couple free songs to listen to. Um, and so a new partnership we just did that is somewhat along mental health, but it's setting people up for success is they came to us a couple months ago and said, we have this financial wellness course. We want to offer county employees in the sheriff's office. And I said, well, could we offer that to the inmates as yeah. well? And so we have formed a partnership for the next year. And these financial wellness classes will be on iPads. So inmates, again, we know a lot of them may have never, they don't know how to manage a checkbook, a savings account. Never even they've had one of those. So now we're going to set them up with that along with programs. And we formed this unit in April of 2019. And knock on wood, we have not had a suicide since April of 2019. We've had a lot of attempts. That's amazing. But we haven't had a successful suicide. And I think that has a lot to do with what the team did. We set out and said, we need to address this. We need to do a better job. And it's working great. Yeah, it's... uh here we go. We, we we make a joke about the uh, the Walk the Talk America drinking game. If we ever mention something, you, you take a shot or something. And, and Christian <laughs> Conti is one of those. Uh, right one of my friends uh, is working in the Pennsylvania prison system, doing uh, really cool work. But the, I think the under the undergirding principle here is when you treat humans like humans, they respond like humans, right? Absolutely. And that's it. Seems revolutionary, but it's like it's so common sense. Like why haven't we been doing this the whole time? Yeah, like we last year, right before COVID, set up a veterans unit. Mm. So now, unfortunately, COVID, we had to move them, disperse them because I need a quarantine unit. But we've managed them still. And when we open back up, we put all our veterans, we average about 56 veterans um, that will identify, that mm-hmm. we can recognize um, in one unit. And when just like you just said, when you treat them like a human, they will respond like a yep. human. So many of these, when we started this, uh, we brought in veteran services. We partnered again with all the service providers. They come in. We actually brought some retired SEALs last year that are in our area. We brought them in to speak to these veterans as a motivational speaker. And uh, I was talking to one when we first opened up. He's like, I've been out of the military for 10 years. I never even knew I had all these services that I could access. Yeah. Um, And so you've seen that. We're starting, and I'm extremely excited about this, uh, a virtual housing unit. So this is the first of its kind that we were working with UNR and uh, Dr. Lannerman up at UNR um, that she knows of and we can find in the world. And what it is is all programs now you can access as we start. We're just in the infancy stage. I can access it through my entire uh, detention facility. So I can have inmates in every housing unit start accessing programs at certain times. I can provide them. And the best part is we're also looking at this of moving it not only in the jail, but outside in the community. So now you look at what we're facing. When you look at the criminal justice and social justice reform and all of this going on, I'm somebody that I can't afford to go to jail for that minor right. citation or whatever I did. You lose your I, job. I'm going to lose my job. House, now car. what we're working with with the courts is with this virtual housing unit, I can keep my job if it's a minor offense. I get sentenced to go to this virtual housing unit. So at certain times I have to work with my employer – I log on and I can complete my programs, whatever I need, and that's where we're going to roll in the mental health, the addiction, the other tools to provide them with success and set them up for success, and we're going to measure it. I just got so much chill from listening to that because what it really amounts to is we're we're not putting people in cages anymore. Right. We're rehabilitating them. Yeah. Right. That's so amazing. Wow. Jake, this really hits home with me because, uh, Sheriff – my my ex wife um, and I have a good relationship with with her. She, you know, she's still part of our lives. 
But she was in a situation in L.A. where she battled uh, addiction and untreated schizophrenia. And what would happen is they would pick her up. They would they would put her into the system. She would have her court date. She didn't believe it was real. Right. So she didn't she didn't listen to the judges. And, and then she would be released and she never came back for a court date. And it became rinse, wash, repeat. And, and, th- and when I tell you, this person was not violent at all. I mean, not violent at all. And we'd talk on the phone and there were times when she had no hope because, you know, I would say, well, you just have to go through the process and show up for the court dates. And she would go, I'm never getting out of here. They, they're going to try to keep me in here. But they weren't treating any of her symptoms or any of her issues. Um, so it just it's really good to hear that, that people are paying attention to that, because I found that one of, you know, when we were trying to help her, it was one of the most frustrating pieces of the process is, you know, what do you do? But I have a question. You said earlier, you talked about the addiction issues. What, how do you handle, I mean, when there's coexisting disorders, right? You have to get them off the drugs and then find out what maybe the issue is. If there is an underlying issue or another issue, right? Mm-hmm. I, like you got to take them through the detox process. That's what I'm saying. Like, how do you identify that, or is there a system for that? Or so uh, with our medical provider, when you come in, we screen you, and they'll start identifying. You know, hey, they're they're under the influence, and then um, our medical provider has um, they're working on AI records, so they can access. Um, a lot of the hospitals are a partnership with us, so they can start accessing if you're here. Now, if you're not here, it makes it a little more difficult, but they'll start accessing records so they can see kind of your history and then see some of maybe the underlying mental health issues you have. But then again, back when I came into office, I got to, with a medical provider and I said, you know, especially after the third suicide, we can't have these. So I have one full-time psychologist on on staff. Uh, I have a part-time psychologist, and then they bumped up their licensed clinical social workers so they go around and they will screen as we're detoxing and work with our deputies and what we call our infirmary of getting them off, but also identifying what type of protocol we need to do to start treating those underlying issues. Um, and so the deputies that we put into those mental health housing units um, are specific because we train them with crisis intervention training, and they have that that extra, not that all deputies, because I want to say every deputy has empathy, but they have what it takes to deal with individuals understanding that um, there may be seven voices in their head, and they, they get it. And so they have meetings on a continuous basis with our psychologist, our case manager in DSU, the DS deputies, and the deputies assigned to each unit. And they're like, okay, how is you know inmate Balaam doing right now? Well, you know what? The last week, uh, he hasn't come out of his cell. And so some of the things that came out, which was great to see the last year, was – uh, some of our shifts, because you know, it's shift work. And so sometimes we may have missed that communication. And one of the things the deputy said is, hey, I have inmates that they don't want to take their meds, but I, what do I do? And other ones thought outside the box are like, well, I'll, I have an orange. And I'll always offer them, hey, I'll give you a sandwich if you take your meds. I'll give you an apple. If you... And so out of those meetings now, we worked with our kitchen and they have a full box of food that they can use. Or we even told them, look, if you need to go buy a candy bar, you know, let us know so that we, we know that, you know, you're not bringing in stuff. But if that's what it takes to get an inmate to take their meds, especially our more challenging ones, that's what we do. So they continually have updating meetings about, all right, you know, inmate Balaam's on, you know, he came in and he was under the influence. We identified that. Um, so we got him on the protocol to detox him. 
Now that he's detoxed, he's exhibiting this. The psychologist will check and either interview uh, once I've come to and I'm, I'm coherent enough to speak. And they're like, okay, looking at records, I see you have X underlying schizophrenia. So how are we going to deal with that? And then, you know, if I am willing or can share with them, I may explain some things. And then they'll talk with the deputies and the uh, social workers and say, okay, what are you seeing on a day-to-day basis? This is what we're seeing. Okay, we're going to try these meds or we're going to bump these meds up. Um, and then they'll ask, all right, we changed M.A. Balaam's meds last week. How, what are you seeing? Like right now we have it, – it, it's horrible, but it's it's what we have. I have an inmate in my facility. Um, I believe she's tried to commit suicide at least once to twice every week. She's been here for six months. Um, and, and because of COVID, it's made it challenging, but she doesn't belong in our jail. And we've, we have constantly – we've actually gotten – the first time in my career – I have a one-on-one, so I have her in a cell and a deputy sitting there for 24 hours a day watching her um, to make sure she doesn't, you know, ram her head into the wall or uh, rip the what we call the um, modesty blanket, which is a heavy, thick yeah. canvas blanket if they're suicidal. She was actually able to get some string out of there and wrap it around her neck one time. So we're at that point with her, and so they'll work with the doctor, and they've, they've changed their meds, and then they'll, they'll, you know, in a day or two, they'll say, okay, what are you seeing, deputies? Um, and so it, it's a constant ebb and flow of, of those type of things of how we deal with them. Mm. I, have one, I have one more quick question, Jake. Um, in an interview that I saw with you, you had said something to the effect of 40 to 60 percent of the people need SSRIs. Um, do you remember saying that? Mm-hmm. You, um, I guess one of the things that I like about that is because in the firearms community, because we're always attacked with you know our Second Amendment right and people – want an explanation for why there's a mass shooter. Um, we're so quick to say like, well, he was on SSRIs. Like we, we, we kind of add to the stigma and I'm, I'm one of those people that goes around saying, let's not do that. Let's not. So some people do need medication and it does work. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we don't want to add to that stigma, but when you're in a situation like that, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners that are going to say, well, he's saying, let's just give him that. And see, that's the problem. That's what we're so quick to do. But you're in it. You know. I mean, you're in the weeds. You're down and dirty in there. Um, and some people do need medication. Uh, they absolutely do. It's, it's you know, and I got to give it to the deputies that work in here day in and day out. Um, there are some that are just, that. that's where they're at. I mean, they, it's sad. Uh, and to know that they're in our custody because that's the only place society has for them right now. Um, and we can't do anything. Um, you know, this inmate came from another county. They shipped him up, shipped her up here for her grandma. I'm pretty sure she only stayed with her grandma for one time, but there is absolutely no way she should be in a state hospital. Um, she just, we've tried a lot. And um, um, it, it's sad to see that people that have gotten to that point, and, and there are, that's, that's what it takes. But there's others, like you said, you can get them stabilized, and as long as they stick on their protocols, they're fine. They function just fine. You'll never even know it unless they tell you that, hey, I'm taking whatever it is. They can function in society, uh, but there's others that, man, um, it, it's just sad watching them and knowing that they're in custody. The, uh, the, the, the civil libertarian in me asks, why not send her to a more appropriate facility? So the reason is uh, I've tried for several months hmm. COVID. Uh, the courts are shut down. And because her charge right now is a battery on a protected person, i.e., uh, she beat up a nurse, um, it's a felony. 
And so to, I have to get her to court to get the courts to order her to go to Lakes Crossing, which mm-hmm. is our mental health facility here up north. Um, and we've been trying to get with the courts and trying. They're just starting to open up. But, again, I've, I've stressed to them, look, she, she's beyond our capacity. Yeah, we need to get her somewhere else. Um, but it's just trying to get the courts and everybody to get her in front of a judge and say, yes, you need to go to Lakes. And that's what we're waiting for. We don't talk politics, but I will soapbox about how utterly harmful our lockdowns have been. And I don't, I don't really care what your opinion is about it. The fact is that it's harming people, and we can't get away from that. And this is one shining example of it where we've got – I mean, this is a human rights issue where government has basically shut down this, this gal's opportunity to get treatment, and, and she's in an inappropriate level of care. And that's horrifying to me. And I, and I, I we, we need to open up. I, I mean, we got to get more creative. This is ridiculous. Uh, so soapbox off. I've, I've jumped off the soapbox now. Um, the other thing I heard though was when when your medical staff are able to connect with uh, records from all over the place, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. All my ears heard as a healthcare practitioner is where's the release of information. <laughs> Where's the authorization to the, you know so like do they sign something when they come in? Is yeah, so uh when they come in the inmates, you know, will will sign over and you know sign out that we can access their medical records. And then uh everybody that joins on and I I I apologize, I forget the software system program we're in, but all three major hospitals are on there um and our medical providers on there, so they all agree HIPAA and they comply and they, you know, will share records if we have that medical release. So we get the release uh, from the inmates when they come in because we screen every single one prior to them even getting into our facility. And then we do a full um, – our intake area, try to describe it for uh, viewers out there just listening. Uh, so before they even – they're in a hallway, we kind of just do a quick assessment. Have you ever been injured? You know, Is there anything obvious that is beyond our capability and we make them, if, if so, say I was just in a bad wreck and I have a you know big lump on my head or maybe I – don't have a lump, but I was in a good, pretty good accident. If I wasn't seen by a true, although we have medical people at our facility, but a hospital, we'll deny them and make that agency go and take them to the hospital, make sure mm. everything's done. There's nothing internal because we don't have x-rays and all the great machines. If something yeah, you don't want somebody wrong. bleeding yeah. out internally. Yeah. And then once they come into what we call our intake area, they're then done uh, additional screening, almost a physical, where then they go into their true middle, and that's where they get their so- waiver. So the follow-up, I guess, to, to link it back to the firearms community is where does that stop? And for people who may find themselves in a bad way someday and find themselves in your custody even, and all their medical records are being pawed through for, the, for good reasons, um, how do we close that box back up so that if they want to go purchase a firearm, apply for a concealed weapons permit, um, they don't end up getting exposed for this thing that they did in yesteryear that has now become, as Mike's favorite phrase, a, a scarlet letter on their chest. They're like, nope, sorry, you're a dangerous person because you had this thing one time. And I don't mean the crime. I mean the the illness. Like, how do how do we close that back up? Or is there, do we know? That's what they're working on. Mm. Well, at least somebody's working on it. Yeah. That, that's one of the things, you know. Again, don't get arrested, folks. Yeah, that, that they're working on. But as far as, you know, when you come in, um, if they were to access it that way through your criminal history, you, you go to courts and you can get those sealed, mm. which would seal it. Then I would never know any of that. 
Um, but on the medical side, that's something that's a whole nother realm. It is. And I'm very protective of that. Um, not only at this agency where our standard answer is no, uh, <laughs> prove to me that you need it, but, uh, not you, if you're asking for your own records, they're your own, but, uh, somebody else asking for them. But, um, but broadly in the profession as a whole, because we're, we're starting to see this encroachment of legislation from various areas that are, you know, that, that says you're not allowed to own a gun if you've ever had a mental illness. In short, uh, that's that's what they're saying, and and it sends a horrible message. Not only because it's it's a restriction of rights, uh, which is a problem unto itself, but also because it sends the message that mental illness can't be overcome or cured, and and I think that's a horrible message to send because it's a message of of. Uh, desperation and and um and limitation that we don't want to say we want to encourage people to get their their stuff treated right mm-hmm. and so if we've got if we've got policymakers out there saying well no sorry if you've ever dealt with this one thing you're permanently scarred and therefore incapable of xyz uh that sends a terrible message to the community that uh once you fall ill you'll never recover so why try right and then we end up with suicides yep to link it all back um I guess I, I I thought I had only one soapbox, but apparently there were two in there. Yeah, Jake, you love the soapbox. Just jump back up there, buddy. Yeah. Wednesday morning soapbox by Jake. All right, um, let's let's move into uh, like staff culture. You've got you've got sworn and civilian staff. Sworn are the the law enforcement officers who uh, go through their their state certifications, and they're they're the cops, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've got c- civilian staff who run everything internally that make things work behind the scenes. Um, there's a, there's a culture as I understand it still, cause I, I still work with police. I, I do, I do the, the academies, I do the CIT week. And then I come from a family full of cops that there's this, uh, it's almost like the military where it's like bootstraps, fix it yourself. Don't tell anybody your problems. Definitely don't admit that you're struggling, uh, for a whole bevy of reasons from, you know, you might lose your job to just being judged and given side eye. How are you handling that? Uh, we're talking about it. That's the first step. step. You know, uh, when we came in, that was one thing. um, As a team, that was one of our goals when we set, when I took office was we we have to address mental illness. We lead the nation in law enforcement year after year in suicides. They've now outpaced, well, actually two years ago, they outpaced uh, line of duty deaths. And the gap is widening, which is frightening. It's widening, and it's sad. And so the first thing we did is we have to start talking about because that is the culture. The culture is, and, and, and the way I explain it when I'm talking to people is I can describe, I can picture in my mind my first uh, fatal, and that was over 20 years ago. Um, I could explain how the mom and go into detail of, of where she was, how she was in the car. That'll never leave me. And I can explain that to everybody. But it's different if I describe it to you versus you're there and every one of your senses is sensing. Yeah. So you're smelling, you're, you're tasting, you're seeing, you're touching. And so all of those senses, it is a lot different. And what we've always trained is, right, I go to a call, and for me, especially after having kids, you talked a lot of when you have mm. kids, mm-hmm. even before, but you have kids, that's, that for me is the tough one. But you go to a child abuse, you go to a, a, a tragic, you know, dead baby call or something like that, you take the report, move on. Next call, take the report, move on. Go to a fatal, take the report, move on. And at the end of the day, you do your reports and you start it all over again. Mm -hmm. And we're supposed to be this strong person, uh, you know, male, female. You don't cry. You don't don't show your emotions. 
because that's going to show this weakness. And we're supposed to be this, you know, keep our community safe and this right. this force that comes out and everybody relies that, you know, as they're running the old statement, you know, they're running from the gunfire, we're running to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know because of those statistics that it wears on you. It wears on anybody, uniform or not. Um, you look in the military, same thing. And so uh, what we did first is we started talking about it. And I came in and I told the office that um, – we all experience it. We're all human. We all put our pants on the same way, and it is going to wear on us. And that we put so much into our profession that it was my goal and our team's goal that we wanted them to enjoy as much after they retire of mm-hmm. all the hard work they've done. And so to do that, we have to start addressing that it's okay to cry. And, uh, you know, I've, I've given a couple of briefings after losing the two uh, employees this, this year. Um, what we did was, because again, one of those stigmas in law enforcement was you will see when there's a line of duty death, we shroud, we shroud our badge. When it's uh, police memorial week, we shroud our badge. But there's a clash within um, law enforcement, even offices, departments of, well, what about suicides? They, they didn't lose their life in the line of duty. They took their own life. Yeah, it's like it's less honorable it's or less something. It's less honorable. And so you have this... Those that may have been close to the person saying, well, what's, what is the difference? They died versus somebody who may have been killed in a shooting or whatever. And those that are like, nope, because this. And so what we did uh, this year is, is, one, we had a great peer support team. Uh, I can't say enough about them. They've expanded. It's both civilian and commissioned. Uh, and so we started doing mandatory briefings um, and saying, hey, any critical event, I don't care as an example, uh, last month we had that fatality out at Gold Ranch where, uh, you know, somebody got killed, got out of a car, got hit by one car, got hit by a semi. Mm. Uh, the description from the deputies was it looked like a debris field but of body parts. Oh. So what we did is after that, typically you would never address that. You would just move on. And maybe the next day you would talk about, you know, how the call went, but that was it. Well, now what we do is the sergeants know – whether it's the jail and we had a suicide, like the person who jumped off the top tier, we pulled, after we had that scene secure and, and addressed the issue, we locked down the facility. Anybody that was involved, we pulled in. We had peer support there. We had supervisors there, and we started talking about it. And we told them, hey, look, this may hit you today. This may hit you tomorrow. It may hit you a month from now. Um, it's okay. But when it does hit you, come forward. You're not going to lose your job. Your job is going to be here for you. But and, – and what I continually stress is that um, what's going to lose your job is when you don't come forward, but then you wait until either you're trying to numb those feelings or numb those memories with you know, alcohol, drugs, and now all of a sudden it affects your job and there's nothing I can do to save your job. Or worse yet, you take your own life. And so that was the first step. Second step was the mandatory briefings and doing that. Third step was we've been working on um, – trying to get a clinician slash psychologist in our organization that would uh, be assigned to the sheriff's office, that would embed themselves in the sheriff's office, go to briefings, do ride-alongs, go to critical incidents, help with our training. Um, And so we had a a benefactor who came forward with a grant for three years. Uh, But in the interim, unfortunately, I lost one deputy January 1st, one civilian employee 20 days later. And so... Both associations 
um, deputies, the supervisor deputies, and the civilians all were telling the commissioners. I was telling the commissioners, we need somebody. We need some help. And so they funded it uh, before my new my new budget starts usually January. Sorry, July. Um, but I got them convinced because they saw the need because of the two deaths, unfortunately those, but they weren't in vain. And that's why I told our staff is the commission heard, they funded. And so in April, I will hire a mental health clinician. Um, and the best part, the person we hired comes from law enforcement. I know that person. Was in law good. enforcement. Yeah. Yes. And um, so we are going to have the, him embedded in our office. And the goal is to work with our peer support team. That's one avenue. Work with, we're going to build up our chaplaincy. Mm. That'll be another avenue. Work with our EAP that you know everybody has. That'll be another avenue. And then there's going to be him. And we have an office. And then we also have, we just identified an offsite office. Uh, so that we know some employees, you know, that, that old sure. stigma um, that they don't want to see him, he will not have access to an offsite and can say, hey, I'll meet you over at this office tomorrow, whatever time. So what we're also going to do now is because I still have the grant, uh, we are looking at bringing on possibly a psychologist in the future. And I, again, have been talking and, and the associations, I have to say, they recognize it too. I mean, that's the one thing I will tell all the listeners out there is, we hear it from in. We're not trying to stand and say, no, we don't have a problem. Everybody is saying we, we have an issue. Uh, and that's what the nice thing is people are talking about that's it. That's a change in and of itself. Absolutely. Yeah. So once I hire this person between my clinician or, or this psychologist, um, I'm going to mandate wellness checks for every commission person awesome. from myself all the way down every year. Um, so that's our next goal. Uh, and so with that, you know, w- we continue to go around – and, you know, when I had to, you know, talk about the two uh, members of my family that were, you know, lost, and I call family the sheriff's office, mm-hmm. um, you know, I almost cried. And, and I'm, I'm okay with that in front of my people because, yeah. like I tell them, we, we're human. It's okay to cry. Um, and the one thing is, is, again, just by talking about it, it took two years. But even I, I just had a meeting with one of the association presidents who's very involved, is on the Northern Nevada Peer Support Network. He said he's seen over the last probably five months a continually uptick in members from his association reaching out saying, hey, I need help. Um, hey, who, who do I go to? And with the associations kind of, again, one of those stigmas is, well, I don't want to go to just anybody mm-hmm. because they may not know about you know what I go through. So they vetted, and we've reached out and worked with with you and others, and said, "Okay, here's people that understand or have that special training in crisis training or law enforcement that you can trust." Because there's always that trust factor with law enforcement. So we have that list now, and it's it's out there. We have it on our our insight, so our employees can access it. We're looking at an app on our phone, so if you for whatever reason still don't want to reach out, it's right there for you, and you can access and you can go to it. Um, and so that's some of the positive things we've done in the office. And uh, we're still a long ways away, but, you know, unfortunately, come January, it seems like uh, like we've all talked about. The first two years, we were kind of like ramming our head against the wall um, and this resistance. But then after we lost two, I think that, that hit everybody at home. It's like, okay, it, it, it's time. We, we, we yeah. need to. And now all of a sudden, the, those doors are opening, the floodgates are opening, and people are like, I, I, I don't want to get to that point or friends are like, I don't want to lose another friend. And so now they're coming forward. Yeah. And Sheriff, when you, you obviously are a team player and you're doing a lot to change the culture, 
were you always like this? I mean, were you always this in tune to mental health? Because I, people ask me all the time because now I'm considered in the firearms community, like the mental health guy, like, you, you know, cause I'm always beating the same drum, but I wasn't this guy. It, it like happened, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so like me five years ago is not the same as me now. Like, how, is that the same type of journey for you or? I would say yes. I wasn't the same person uh, before. Um, I was that person that went to call to call to call and held it in. Um, and then a few things in my life, uh, the death of my dad was one of them. Uh, and then as I rose up and then especially as we started to see some of the people that I knew start to take their lives, that's when it really hit home. And then when you're in those leadership roles, I mean, they're looking to you. And it's you can either, not saying other leaders before me did it, but you can put your head in the sand or you can stand tall. And, and you know, for us, and it's across the region, that's the best thing. It's just not my agency. I will say every agency, uh, state, local, federal, we're all talking about it. We're all there. Uh, there's some bills we're working on. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll let it out because it's a great thing they're doing. It's no secret, but they're working um, with some other organizations to c- create possibly a resiliency center is what they're going to call it. Who is this, Nevada Legis- uh, Legislature? Northern Nevada Peer Support Network. Oh, nice. Um, along oh. with some other nonprofits, possibly, wow. to build a center um, that will have a training room, have a conference room, but have offices, and it'll be for first responders. And kind of what they're looking for is um, – It'll have a gym. I was just talking to the, the president of one of the associations because he's involved in this. They may have a masseuse, and part of that masseuse is, hey, look, we'll give you – we have an office space. We'll give you a discount on the rent. But in turn, when our members come in, first responders come in, work with them on, on the cost. Yeah. Um, or for uh, clinicians, we'll have an office for you, and part of the deal of your rent is when we need somebody seen, you'll see them and, and you'll work with them. And um, it, it's exciting to see, again, um, it was – if you had talked about this three, four years ago, I don't know if you would have gotten anywhere, even before that. Um, but now they they threw this idea out late last year, and you know it'd be my hope um, if we get it going by the end of the year, you should see some movement on it of hopefully a, a, a site. They already know where the site's going to be, but that funding piece of starting to reach out. What's encouraging to me is to see the community collaboration because that's not traditionally something that's happened in our in our region for sure but not even in our profession we've we've been ridiculously territorial for a long time and like fighting over hurt people as if there isn't enough hurt to go around it's very bizarre um but that's really really encouraging i'm gonna go back to something you you mentioned before about when when mike asked like have you always been this way and you know no i've i've changed i think that i think being humble to feedback is is key right we want to be able to uh, modify our worldview and accept people's feedback to say, Hey, you're not as hot as you think you are. Um, and then, and then integrate that and, and allow ourselves to, to evolve. And for people who are listening, who may not have seen like some of the, the other stuff that I've done, like the YouTube videos on emotional functioning, just because you're a certain uh, profession or gender or belief system doesn't mean your brain stops working, right? So just because you don't want to emote doesn't mean your limbic system quits. It still works. And and when it's when your limbic system, which is responsible for your emotional functioning, is pumping brain chemicals like cortisol and adrenaline and epinephrine and serotonin, th- those things have to go somewhere. And if you don't acknowledge it and work through it in a proper way, sometimes that's through talking because there's a processing mechanism by which you, we, we – deal with those chemicals 
physiologically through, just through talking or exercise, which is amazing and everybody can do it um, in some form or another, or hobbies or interests, if you don't do that, those chemicals get stuck at a cellular level and will absolutely actually poison your body. And that's why we end up getting things like unexplained ailments and maladies, uh, you know, mystery illnesses. And then in order to deal with those, we end up reaching for things like alcohol and medication, which is something you referenced earlier that I, you know, I mean, we're centering on suicide here, but there's all those preconditions to suicide also that, and, and if somebody never dies by their own hand, they could still live a pretty miserable life because they're checked out of their family. They're walking around bitter and angry and resentful. Uh, maybe there's not even substances on board. They're just miserable, right? And we want to we want to be self-aware enough so that when somebody comes to us and says, hey, for the last few weeks, I've noticed you're a little off. What's up? You know, and, and have them be, hopefully be honest enough to receive that feedback, which requires a vulnerability. And it sounds like you're trying and succeeding in pushing a culture of vulnerability through your organization, which is really, really cool. And you're doing it by your own modeling. Um, but you specifically mentioned your dad. I know your dad struggled with cancer for a long time. And then, uh, and he and my dad were super close friends and I, I was, <clears throat> I'm going to, I'm going to cry and that's okay because I'm Mr. Emotional functioning. Um, I was in the kitchen with my dad when he got the call and he cried, he sat down and cried and he just said, Dennis died. And I started crying because I know how close they were, but also I was like, that could be my dad, right? How did you push through that? And what was the process like? Um, supported my wife. That, wow. that was a process. Um, because every time, I think that was probably one of the biggest changes um, for me personally um, and emotionally was after that death, you know, now when things hit me, it's, I'll start crying more. Yeah. Um, but it was my wife because I'm one of those um, because of the profession, because just because who I am growing up. I don't show my emotions. Right. I, I never have. And so, um, in fact, the day I had to go over when I got the call and went and uh, saw, went to my dad's house and, you know, helped his wife through that. Um, I came back and told my wife that was the first time I'd cried in front of her. And that was, we'd already been married almost 15 years. Yeah. Um, and wow. so uh, I have been blessed, thank goodness, that my wife's been in that profession. She understands it. But more importantly, she's a listener. And she has that empathy, and so she let me bounce that off. And so every every so often, even today, you know, there'll be a song, there'll be a photo, mm. there'll be a smell, there'll be a show um, that'll hit, and it'll it'll hit me or it'll hit her, and, and we'll, we'll just talk about it. Oh, cool. Um, and that's how uh, we do it. But, yeah, if I start really diving in, I'll start crying because um, I miss them every single day, and especially uh, some of the big hurdles. Um I know. I know. I wish it, he would have been here. He uh, he did some amazing stuff in his time too. Some very revolutionary things with the department, and um, and unfortunately, he didn't get to see you installed. Mm -hmm. Which is, um, I think, it would be uh, it would be really special. But um, but I know what your office looks like, and you got all the sheriffs, and so you still have his picture there. I do, and I have. Uh, it's sentimental for me. Uh, the desk I sit at, he actually bought that when oh, when wow. he became sheriff, and it it's. Mm. It is ratted and tatted up, and it probably needs to be replaced, but I just can't. Not under your watch. Um, no, <laughs> you know, and that's just something for me. But, you know, and, and it, it, every day there's a struggle. Like, uh, you know, my, my daughter watching her progress and um, some of the stuff she's accomplishing. He loved his grandkids. Mm -hmm. uh, was always He never missed a sporting event. 
and she's watching her progress now. We're my oldest and our first grandbaby. You know, we always, those first were like, we love them. And we're like, you know, I wish my dad was here because we know he would have been their biggest yeah. cheerleader. Yeah, for sure. Um, tears, by the way, I read a study recently, contain cortisol. Cortisol is a stress hormone that is usually excreted during fight or flight incidents. So uh, crying actually does release stress and it releases cortisol from the body. Crying isn't just uh, fashionable now. It's, it's actually healthy. I, should I cry? Uh, <laughs> we, all, we all looked at you. Yeah, like, we're like, we're yeah. ready for a tear. Come on. It's like, cue. <laughs> that's you, Mike. You cry. Oh. No, that, that, that's a beautiful, that's, uh, you know, I, I'm sorry for your loss, especially in the in the department. Um, it's a really beautiful story about your father, and I'm sure he's looking down on you and super proud. Um, you really are doing some amazing things. And this is in an era where we're in this mode where it's like, hate authority, hate police, hate sheriffs. Um, it's, it's really good to see that. And this is why we do this. Not everybody's like that. That, you know, what they sensationalize on television, that's not always the case. Um, you know, it's, and it's good for people to hear that. Yeah. So I appreciate you coming on and being so vulnerable and showing, you know, that side. Yeah, I, I absolutely appreciate, you know, you guys giving this opportunity, especially, you know, cause I know, the one thing, and, and we really haven't talked about it as an office yet publicly, w- was our two two suicides. Um, and I will tell you that the um, those were my first as sheriff notifications to family members, and they were the worst. They don't get easier with either one. Um, and what we've talked about so far hit on everything that was wrong in those both instances, i.e. the stigma. The fear of losing the job, the fear of being labeled by their peers of, oh, my gosh, there's something wrong with this person. Um, and that's not the case. They just needed some adjustments, you know, and to talk to somebody. Um, and if they would have just reached out and, and one was, they just had hit something, right? And we still don't know. And that's that's a sad thing. And, and you know, that's the one thing that I think has encouraged this office. And, you know, uh, we look at Truckee Meadows model, FIRE. Uh, and um, Steve over there, who's there uh, helping them build their mental health program. And, you know, I remember he came over and talked to us, and the one thing he told our – because we formed a mental health committee. So we have mm-hmm. our members that talk about how are we messaging, you know, what do we need to do, what's, what's our next steps. Um, and so, you know, what he said was when you build that trust, and, and I, I, I guess for the community, no matter what profession, but – uh, I would say military and those, when, when you have to rely upon that person to save your life, there's that just, it's a different bond. It's that, it's that thin blue it line is. of our, it's, it's, it's nothing more than we're recognizing those people that gave their life like the military gave their life for our country mm-hmm. and our freedoms. Um, but there's that trust. And so we're taught to, you know, kind of be a little suspicious. So, you know, when we talk to you, we're like, okay, what are you doing out here at midnight? Well, I'm walking. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. <laughs> there's that suspicion. So when you try to tell people, hey, Drop that trust. Trust me. Even to each other, we're still a little suspicious, yeah. but once you build that trust, the floodgates will open. And that's what we're seeing just with our peer support team and some of the stuff we're doing. You're, you're, we're seeing that trust build, and now people are feeling a little more comfortable. And, you know, after the the second uh, suicide, you know, the one thing I think that we've taken out of this working with the families is um, they're still – they're never going to be the same. Never. 
Um, but with one of the moms uh, of our, our deputy, I know that at, when she is ready, um, she's made it clear she wants to come talk. And I'm like, I am ready, and so is the office. When you're ready, because they need to hear. They need to hear from the other side of the mom that's still asking the question because there was no, no note, no nothing of why. The, the why that we always hear in suicides, why is this? So that if you're in that, that, that low, that depression, that whatever it is, you know, maybe if nothing else, maybe that trigger of, okay, my loved one, my families, my friends, they may have the same question, and I see the, the, just the tragedy and, and the sadness on this person's face. I don't want that, so I'm going to reach out. It's okay. Um, you know, and I think the more and more we, we get moving forward with this, especially because we talked about it, um, and, and we'll make sure internally, um, you know, I'll be the first one to sign up when we have this, even if it's just, you know, our clinician for that, that wellness check. You know, if that's what makes people feel better and it's not a mental health check, we yeah. call it a wellness check, we'll call it whatever. I'll be the first one in line so that everybody sees, and same with the front office. And I think we've all agreed that um, that'll be the, the best thing of helping a stigma is as I'm walking down the hall, if nothing else, if we're all having to do it, that, you know, you see me in the hall, well, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going to do my wellness check. I may or may not right. be. Right. But everybody's going to assume because they'll see this traffic. And it's the other <laughs> That's thing, your fourth one this week. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, and then, but the other thing we, we always forget about, and I almost forgot and I don't want to, is, you know, it's just not the commission side, i.e. our deputy sheriffs. Mm. Dispatchers yep. quite often get forgotten. Because they may not be seen because they're not on scene, but they're in the head headphones and they're hearing the screaming on the air, just like our call last night uh, down south with the individual we pitted that tried to run over a trooper or a suspected trying to, you know, Explain swerve. Uh, they, they basically did a maneuver with their cars to Michael stop him. Um, so they spun him out as he was trying to get away. So you, you kind of... You, you nicely tap the back of their uh, right rear or left rear, and it spins a car in a circle and, and enables a car typically. And that ends a pursuit because he was going uh, near the hospital in Carson. But, um, you know, listening to that radio, you could hear at one point uh, some of the deputies because they were in uh, – one was coming at – they started screaming out on the air, right? So if you're not on scene seeing it, you have to listen. And, and so for those dispatchers, they get this bond, same bond that I may have with my deputy. It's just different because oh, – yeah. They're answering those calls, or they're dealing with the person on the other line that's calling for help, and they're hearing the background, the screaming, the shooting, the whatever it is, the the uh, despair in that person's voice of "Please get them here," and then they still deal with emotional stuff. So, you know, that's the other thing we we always have to uh, not forget because they're not in our building, and oftentimes we do forget the dispatch is they need just as much support as our deputies and our civilian staff. Um, they they may not be in a housing unit. But they're in our intake, dealing with these as a book individuals in. They may be seeing it on the cameras of, again, I may not be in the unit with the person that jumped off the top tier, but I have the video and I was watching as this person. And so everything affects somebody different. And that's where, again, it's just not the deputies. We're doing it throughout the entire office. Well, they hear it too, right? So in, in cross traffic and then the in the talks in the hallways and stuff, you, know, you may be um, working the front desk of somewhere and and there's just passing conversation about some horrific thing that occurred once that goes into your psyche it it's there right you there's no such thing as forgetting um one interesting tidbit that uh our our profession kind of didn't realize until 9 11 happened was that we didn't realize that vicarious trauma could occur we uh, until that 
heretofore 9-11, the belief was that you had to experience it firsthand in order to get post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms and then subsequent diagnosis. After that, everybody's having these trauma effects, trauma symptoms, right? Even though they weren't in D.C. or Pennsylvania or, or, uh, or New York, um, and we were all stressed out and we were all losing our appetites and we were all having sleepless nights. And it was because we were shown those images over and over and over and over and over and over again on network TV, uh, pre-viral internet. There was no social media to share all that stuff. Now imagine when, our, when, our, when we're looking at something online over and over and over and over again, what that does to our, our mental status. Now imagine working in a workplace where you're just exposed to bad things all the time. We now know that vicarious trauma is real. Um, unfortunately, in the in the in the book, the DSM, the the diagnostic criteria to get a post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis, and I'm not going to soapbox on this yet, but but uh, you um, you still have to have experienced the threat of you know death or whatever to yourself or others in person, unless it's part of your job. So if you're a sex crimes detective continually looking at, you know, photographs over and over. What they don't account for is random common people like teenagers scrolling the internet, watching death videos or whatever. And I think that's probably because the book came out in 2013, our current iteration of it. And it, social media just hadn't quite taken off yet. I'll bet that in the DSM six, they have to account for that. But to your point, staff, you know, need support too. Yeah. You know, and the other thing uh, that we're blessed to have is uh, spouses or yep. significant others. They don't yep. always have to be ladies. They could be right. males yep. but or partners um, because we have a, uh, a spouses group. And so the other day they had That's their cool. own. So there's another avenue because we also know their, their spouses. And they had a uh, panel of uh, two of them. Well, one um, is a commissioned and her significant other – is also in law enforcement, kind of like mm. my wife and I were. One, her husband, and she works with us. She's a civilian staff. Her husband uh, was a deputy, just retired. Uh, the other one uh, is a spouse and wasn't in law enforcement, but her spouse is. And the fourth one, um, she's outside law enforcement. Her husband's in the spouse. But listening to him talk, to your point, uh, one of the wives on there, and they were talking to wives about how they deal with it. Because, again, that's another thing we realize. It may not be some of the calls, but just like everybody else in our community, they have their own personal issues, all of yeah. us, yep. whether it's the kids and dealing with how we're, we're adjusting to this COVID in school or uh, financial issues. It may not have anything to do with the job. And uh, I was watching it, and one of the spouses, um, not the one that was in law enforcement, you know, she was like, here, my husband would come home and tell me about, you know, oh, well, today I... I went to a call and, you know, child abuse or, you know, something traumatic. And and for her, it was kids too. And they have kids. And, you know, and then be like, yeah, you know, tomorrow's the next day. Right? Because that's, again, typically how we've trained them. And she finally had to tell him, look, don't tell me. Because then she would internalize it. And for three, four days, she's not sleeping. She's not eating. And so that's another thing we have taken back. And now we're starting to address both in the academy when you have our new recruits come in, when we have civilian staff is the next iteration of bringing their spouses. And even though they're the civilian side is, uh, we lay out for the family, hey, you're going to have some struggles, whether personally or through this profession. This profession is hard because it's shift work. 
um, whoever is in it and you're supporting them, they're going to work different hours, late hours, see things that other people don't see. And so you may need some help. So here's some avenues. So we're starting that at the beginning for like our deputies. Um, And the next will be for our civilians and have a spouse. And then we're going to continue um, of having these events throughout the year just so, again, we bring everybody together. And, again, it may be all three of us are in the same thing. And we know that Mike, all of a sudden, we recognize something. And in this event, though, we have that bond. We're like, hey, did you notice that someone's wrong with Mike? Mm -hmm. And we may go corner him. And that's how we get him to say, hey, it's okay. Let's go get you some help. It communicates you care, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're excited. I mean, it's it. We have it a long be. way to go, but um, I just don't want. Like I've told my staff, we picked for our suicides a green ribbon for Mental Health Awareness mm. Month. So that's mm. how we honor them. Uh, we don't shroud the badge. So I told them, you know, time and time again, you know, we are creating avenues. We're working our best, but I only want to have to put that on during the month of Mental Health Awareness. I don't want to have to put it on any other time. Right. And so. You know, if it's here's my numbers, everybody has my number. If it's you need to call me, doesn't matter, even though I'm the sheriff, I will be there and we will get you the help. And so, again, I think the biggest thing we all can do is, and, and I'm just going to even go outside of law enforcement, but for law enforcement, is it's that conversation. We have to have that conversation and continually have it. Yeah. Yeah. What's the, would you say, and I know we're, we're on time crunch here, Jake, but. What, what would you say the biggest obstacle to success moving forward in the future is? Is it funding? Is, you know, uh, you, you know, I would say if you want, if you see kind of the national movement, they, they've started. We, we had a bill. I don't think it's going to get a hearing. I don't know where it's at in the process. I haven't looked in the last couple of days of that mandatory mental health check. You know, we do a yearly physical. Um, so it's two things. It's the funding. Um, depending on how you write it, you know, if, if they were to force me to go outside, I don't, I don't have the money to pay for, for that. Cause we looked at that and that's, that's for my, you know, agency and we're not small, we're midsize. You're in the hundred plus thousand dollar range or more. So that's the first thing. Um, but the second thing is, and I think the other biggest hurdle is just breaking the stigma, breaking this culture that mm-hmm. it, it's okay. Um, cause again, what we've seen over the last four to five months is once you can start breaking those walls down, it opens up. It's it's getting it, though. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've been fortunate. The office, you know, the associations have been behind me, and we've gotten a lot of buy-off. Um, and tragically, you know, I'm not fortunate enough, but those two deaths, I think, really were a turning point for, for my office and everybody within it. Um, but having that support and that buy-in from the associations, because sometimes they may, you know, you may butt heads with the administration. Nope, we don't want this. And when I went about this mental health wellness check, whatever we want to call it, there was no hesitation in all three associations. That's cool. And they were like, yep, we're here. And I said, okay, well, when we do it, because it, there's no law that says it, but I can mandate it. And I went into briefings since we talked about this, and I said, look, this is our goal. And I know there's some of you know pros and cons to mandating everybody, but this is what I've told my employees. I can tell you to go when you're on duty. I, can, I can't force you to talk, right. but I will only ask you out of the 739 employees if half of them at least open up, they're going to realize, hey, look, I mean, even even myself, look, if I open up, I know that there's maybe a few things I just need to talk to somebody about and and, and just fix it, tweak it. That's, so, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah, please tell me that there's other sheriffs, like, contacting you and, and asking about your methods and models and 
things like that? Or yeah, yes. You- so uh, Nevada Sheriffs and Chiefs, okay. we've been talking about it. Uh, both, I, I, I'll give kudos to both Reno and Sparks Chiefs as well. Um, and, and UNR, you know, Reno has a um, an officer assigned. They did it about almost two years ago. Um, you know him, Michael. Yes. He's, he was on this show. He was. You know, and so he's a great guest. Yes. And so they <laughs> identified him kind of like my clinician, but he, and, and then they, you would have to hit them up, but they are working on a um, outpatient program. I just heard about it at one of our last meetings. So again, there's a lot, you know, I, I, I would say I have a great team, but other police chiefs and sheriffs are listening and we are, we are moving at least in the North Nevada and I think in the whole state. Everyone will be blowing up your phone after this because we have millions of listeners. Well, good. We don't. But <laughs> <laughs> hey, but maybe you will after this. Yes. Yes. That's, right. that's exactly it. If we get to Launches one, that's to all fame. that matters. Yeah. 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 But to your point, though, about the, the if you get half of them, I mean, that's, I, it's a, maybe it's a, an appropriate analogy, maybe not. But um, I was told once about people who are trying to, to get vaccinations out and, you know, because there's a lot of suspicion with the conspiracy theories and whatnot, that, it's not about listening to the professionals tell us how safe they are and how good they are and how effective they are. It's about listening to your own people. So if I have a skeptical friend or family member and I go get the shot and I go, yeah, my arm was sore. I was you know, sick for a couple of days, but then I'm, I'm good. Um, I really believe in this. They're going to hear that and go, well, if this trusted person in my life believes in it, then maybe I can too. And, and that's what will happen with these wellness checks is it'll just start to to, to take root, right? Because it won't be from the top down. It won't be the boss telling him or like the mental health community or whatever it is. It's my friend said it was good, right? Um, Mike asked about uh, obstacles, and I'll just throw this out there. Um, I think I think honestly, finding the bodies is going to be really tough because provide we're so provider deficient in this in this state. But you yeah. have somebody in house, which is awesome, and yes. that's that's a a blessing that I think a lot of people would, would love to have. I, I would agree. And, and I'll share this time crunch wise quick story. So I'll keep it short. We're honoring to your, your time. Point, we got though. forever. <laughs> so yeah, take your time. I, I did have an employee two months ago, reach out. So again, shows that we're making progress. Um, and so, uh, they did their spouse worked with them. And, again, the other thing with law enforcement is if you go to any of the classes, i.e., you know, I'm going to go to a a group session, it's the thought of, well, I don't want to go to any group session because I may have arrested some of the people that are sitting in that group session, right? right? right. And so creating that safe environment that it's either all first responders or whatever. So that was one of their concerns. I'm not going anywhere in this region because, one, they may know me, or, two, I may see somebody there. Hopefully you didn't arrest a paramedic. No. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So, thank goodness they were at a point that they were willing to go in. Their spouse reached, so we reached out. So we recommended the Mallory Center, which is mm-hmm. uh, the center down in Carson, mm-hmm. a mental health hospital. So they took them down there. They called and said, "Come, come in tomorrow." They show up, no beds. They said, "Well, we'll have a bed at one o'clock." Thank goodness, as we all know, there's a short window sometimes for people that are in crisis yeah. of them willing to cooperate. So they said, well, let's go grab lunch and we'll come back. And, and they were compliant. And so they did that, came back at one, no beds. So their offer was, well, you can go to the, the Carson Tahoe Hospital. They get first priority. 
admitting them, get them what we call here in Northern Nevada Legal 2000, which is, you know, you can hold them for up to 72 hours. And then they get first priority to come to Mallory. And that's how you can get them in here. Thank goodness they were in the right mindset to say, okay, I'll try that. Mm. So they, they took them over to Carson Tahoe. They dropped, dropped them off, went home because with COVID you can't stay. Right. And a couple hours later, the hospital called. The uh, husband said, you got to come pick her up. He's like, what? Well, because she wasn't actively trying to kill herself. Um, didn't meet we criteria. Can't, didn't meet the criteria. So we can't hold her. And he's like, well, we're, we're, you know, Nate, we're trying to get, sorry. So again, he comes, picks her up. They explain, they call the Mallory Center, like, all right, come tomorrow. We'll have a bed at whatever time. Um, and they're communicating this and we're like, hey, if you need us to make some phone calls, you know, I mean, here, here's an example. And this is just not law enforcement. This is showing the community to your point of, of short staff um, or short bodies. Next day they show up at the time, no bed. Jeez. They finally, th- and again, thank goodness she stayed in that that mindset that she wanted the help. Uh, we finally got her in later on that day, but it took, you know, four or five tries and several days to get that person. So, um, you know, that's what everybody. It's just not us. That's what everybody's facing. To your point yep. of, we don't have enough bodies. Is is it is is when people truly do then seek. You can see where, because we see it on the other end. Unfortunately, they go and they they get turned away. So like, well, I. I give up, and they, they go back to that mindset, and maybe they take their lives, unfortunately. And then we hear it, and their families are like, you know, we tried. We tried. And we've heard that yeah. story for years. We yep. tried. We tried. So that is another obstacle. I'm glad you brought that up. Our clinical community needs to do a better job, too, of not uh, languishing people in treatment in perpetuity also. We we can do a better job of clearing the, the runway, so to speak, so that more people can come in by getting them treated faster and better and deeper and not continue to sniff for more problems because I think we've got a we've got a history of that where it's like we're we're trained in school whatever brings them into the counseling session is almost never the actual problem right it's something softer it's something a little more adjustable um or it's just or it's just the Trojan horse and our job is to like find the real problem and I have no problem with that as long as we're addressing the real problem and then once we get them healed, we send them out the door. We're not looking for more problems. And I think what we do is we fall into a trap. And I don't think it's nefarious or sinister or anything. I think it's just our our professional culture is that we tend to really want to fix every little thing about the person before they're out the door. And like, really, really make sure they're, they're good. Like, really, really good. <laughs> and it's like, they didn't come in for that. We, we're flirting with creating a dependence. And... You're, you're obstructing access to care for somebody else. So my exhortation at, at, the, you know, at Zephyr to all our clinicians is get them in, get them treated, get them out. If they need to come back, they can come back. But mean to, meanwhile, somebody who's really hurting is waiting for that slot. And, um, and it's, pro, it's, pro, it's a problem, especially with COVID and all everybody, children for sure. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. you know demand is skyrocketing and provider availability is uh, not, not great. So. You know, let's. Yeah, when I first started in the in kind of the, the the space that Walk the Talk America's in, and I was developing relationships with organizations like Mental Health America, you know, and I had always heard we lost all these hospitals, these mental health facilities, they all closed down, 
And I, I assumed that was a bad thing. And then talking to some of the people at Mental Health America, they were like, no, that was a good thing because some of those places were awful. Now, I'm sure there's a balance somewhere in there, right? Um, what is your opinion on that? Because that's all I hear now is there's no place to put people and we don't have beds and we don't have these things. So I see why people go, well, we closed all those places down and they should be open. And I've never been able to get a real answer from like Mental Health America. Like, what is the answer or how do we do this? Or there's got to be a, a way that we look at this differently. We're, you know, maybe maybe it's just a different approach, but having facilities. Are you asking me or Darren? Sorry. Both. Okay. I'll, let you, <laughs> I'll let you go first. I'll tee it up. Yeah. yeah. So it's multifaceted. So there's there's not one problem there with um, hospitals. So so I'd invite everybody to... to embrace the idea that there are multiple types of hospitals and it's not what you think they are. Um, when we're talking about residential treatment for psychiatric care, even that is stratified even today. So what you're talking about here is the, what they call the institutes of mental disease, which is a totally archaic and outdated term from the sixties. But that was what they closed. They closed these institutions of mental disease and what they didn't want was public dollars going to house people, ongoing forever and ever um, because they were deemed unfit right and and some and there were they were a cash cow for certain places it's almost like privatization of prisons similar type of debate right some some can be very good some can be very evil and um, it wasn't helped any by the by the media portrayal of things like one flew under the cuckoo one flew over the cuckoo's nest right um, so those types of long-term care facilities closed. What happened was they took the chronically mentally ill, now people struggling with lifetime schizophrenia and, um, and psychosis usually is what you're talking about, and also people who have on uh, co-occurring mental illness with cognitive delays. And instead of housing them in state facilities, they're now in community facilities. And those facilities are limited to six beds, so you can have no more than six people in a home. But you got the same problem now where corporations make business out of housing people in homes that look like yours, mine, whatever, down the street. And so these people just live there and they're supposed to be on a path to recovery. I have worked in those for on and off for several years and I, I currently am a clinical director for one of, the, one of those companies uh, who does it well. They're supposed to be on a path to independent living. Now, some of them aren't capable of that because of cognitive delays or whatever, or impairments. Some of them can. But the the nasty little trick behind the scenes is that if you graduate the person, you lose a person off your rolls. So you lose money. Now, again, there's the insecurity and the presumption that there's not somebody else waiting to be treated. That's what's supposed to be happening. We're supposed to be elevating these folks, giving them tools and skill sets to go live somewhat independently or fully independently. What's happened is we've just shifted where they live. They're no longer living in state hospitals anymore. And I use that term loosely. They're living in tract homes in suburban sparks uh, forever. And so it's just, it's just a, a shell game with the money. Now, what we still have are places like Lakes Crossing, which is for the mentally ill who have committed crimes. And we have um, acute care hospitals, like in our area, it's... Um, um, Reno Behavioral Health and West Hills. And then we have the emergency departments of the various uh, physical hospitals that we think of traditional hospitals. Um, but we don't have anything long-term residential for adults. We have long-term residential for children, 
But there's hiccups there based on various state laws too. So I can tell you that Nevada receives a lot of -of out-of-state placements from, say, California because a lot of these kids are so impacted that they, they run away. And so in California, you're not allowed to lock the kids in. In Nevada, you are. So they have, you know, magnet sealed doors and stuff like that. And they, they actually get treatment at it. It looks like a hospital. It feels like a hospital, but they live there and there's programming all day long. And, and I worked at one of those and it was very good. Um, but the question is what, whether it's good or bad, I think it's horrible. And I think we need to return to state run so that we're not having profiteering off the backs of the permanently mentally ill, um, state run hospitals that are, we, we, we need to return to the institutions but judiciously. Um, that's that's my take, my opinion. It's going to be a he- heck of a heavy lift, though, because of all the things and all the reasons. What's your take? I, you know, I, I'd say the same thing. Um, there are individuals, but are, are ones with acute type of, of illnesses. All they need is, and there's a lack or ability uh, in our communities to access where they get their meds. So a lot yeah, of times, yeah, again, yeah. Yeah, that's we, true we, too. we have them with their meds. Now we, we leave them with usually typically a 10-day supply um, if we can when they, they leave the facility. So that yeah. there's a with, gap. An ap- with an appointment 45 days away. Yeah, you know, yeah. and so what what it is is that they may either not want to go from because they are riding the bus and they have to go wherever. And so it's mm-hmm. like, well, no, I'll go on the street and go back to my old habits of I'm self going to medicate. So those individuals, yes, we need to open up the access. So to make it easier, somehow fix that system of how do we get them access so they can get on their meds, stay on their meds. It's easy for them, no matter what their mode of transportation is to get the meds. And some of them need some encouragement to stay on them. Um, And then there's the ones, and I think that's where, you know, the one example I gave you of, of the one that's in our facility now, you know, I, I don't know, because I'm not, you know, on the medical side of that, I don't know if she could ever function right. out there. And so for that person, if you, if as a system set up now, when she's done with her thing, either they're going to find her incompetent and then therefore she won't be charged. She'll be released. She's going to go on the community. She's going to get into something because she can't function. And right. she, you know, we have in a very uh, enclosed, uh, secure setting, can't get her to take her meds. She's not going to do it on the outside. No. And so- She'll end up doing another crime. She's going to come back in our facility. We'll have to deal with her while she goes through the justice process. They'll either find her incompetence. So that we do need somewhere to put them. But again, I think to your point, you watch the media and you see uh, the old movies of where they're in straight jackets, yep. you know, drooling on themselves, sitting in a corner. No one's caring about them. That's not what we need. But we do need some facilities where, for our truly, and you know, that's what the one housing unit is that we have. Um, We've tried everything, and, and yep. they are just so far either gone from you know years of substance abuse or other things that they can't function. So if you let them back out in society, they're going to either go harm somebody else yep. or do something. But a lot of them, you can get them once you get them, but then it's the ability when they get out of how do they access it. If I have to drive clear across town or walk, I'm not going to do it. Which is, which is why the community-based living arrangement uh, works for some, doesn't work for what you just described. We need we need to return to state-run institutions for people like that to to preserve their humanity, and maybe rehabilitation is possible. But we can't do it in the jail setting. No. Your deputy, it's amazing you got a one-on-one. Your deputy is not a clinician. It's not a doctor. It's not a. I mean, like they're they're babysitting, yeah. and that's and that's not appropriate either. So yeah, that's that's why I'm an advocate for that, and that's why I say judiciously. We can't just you know 
throw everybody in who's a problem. It's no, no, we need we need adequate screening. And again, we're talking dollars and we're talking bodies. There is an answer. I do have it. I'm not going to share it on here because it'd take too long. But but I have thought this through. It's it is possible. It takes a lot of political will and actual capital. But it can be done. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, um, <laughs> Solving the world's problems. That's what it is. <laughs> I like the way you teased that, Jake, and then took it away. You're like, there's an answer, but uh, I'm not yeah. going to share it. <laughs> I'm going to leave you right on the edge of the cliff right there. Every listener right now is like, what? Our next next million (laughs) listeners that we're going to capture, they'll they'll be like, I can't wait for the next episode. (laughs) Next, All four of the listeners are like, what did you just do, Jake? (laughs) (laughs) I just like teasing people. (laughs) No, it's, uh, I guess, you know, the one thing I take from this is you hear about everything. Jobs are going to be automated. And it's like, okay, people, like, let's all go into mental health (laughs) or... You know, like that's something that a computer is never going to be able to do for us, you know, so maybe that's a that's a market that needs to be, you know, pushed to the forefront saying we need these people on the front line, like do some hardcore recruiting like the military does uh, to get people in this setting. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I got a, I got thoughts and opinions on that, too. Not everybody needs a graduate degree to do what we do either. I mean, I, I say regularly that somehow humanity over its existence got to where it is. And our profession's only been around for like 120 years, really. Probably like 70 in its current form. Somehow we managed without the the professional licensed clinician, you know. So uh, I think we we need to rethink the, you know, got to have a licensed therapist. And this is coming from a guy who used to chair his licensing board. <laughs> like, it sounds like heresy, right? But how how much good work is out there from peer support specialists and pastors and um, community health workers and just the you know the the non licensed um, you know bachelor's level or even high school degree people like you you got a lifetime of experience of getting through some heartache and pain you can share that with people and create a lot of healing. I don't know that we need to bill insurance for it. It's like ah, Jake's. You know, I can see hear, hear the you know the booing and the hissing and the crosses coming out and you're shaking in my face like, don't say that. You're gonna ruin everything. Yeah, our honeypot is not our own. <laughs> anyway, um, Mike always likes to close by asking our guests the same question. Okay, so this is probably a good time for that. Yeah, Sheriff, thank you for coming on. Um, I'm, you've restored some faith in me, and and there's good stuff going on. Uh, how do you tend to your mental health? You you deal with a lot. How do you personally tend to your mental health? Uh, I work out. So um, I I have found, especially coming into this office um, as as the sheriff, uh, that if I don't work out every day, I don't sleep. Um, so that's part of it. The other part is uh, making sure, and again, um, that when I'm on my off time, yes, I'm still on and I answer my phones and I'm reading the emails, but I take that time consciously to tell myself and my wife will remind me if I don't or my kids and we will go do stuff with the family. And, you know, the, the first year, this is my first year in office, so or first term in office, third year. First year, you know, I jumped in and it was full steam ahead, everything. And and each year I found myself, okay, now I need to, I need to make sure that I'm doing everything. I have a great team and staff, but I got to make sure and take time for myself. So that's what this year – uh, both my wife and I have concentrated on is, you know, the office is going to be there. It, I have a great team. I have trust in that team. But that's how I do it is, is take that time, uh, spend it with my family. But for me personally, it's enjoying that but working out. 
we've we've done thirty five or so of these episodes. I don't know that we've had the a repeat answer on that. Yeah, as I mean, people have said, "Yeah, I exercise, I do," but like the the convicted answer, right? Like I work out. Like I don't know that we've heard that yet. No, um, oh, that's awesome. Do you Thank golf? You. I do. You do? I do. And that's I guess that would be the other thing working out, but those extracurricularly outdoor activities. Um, love to hunt. Love to go f- golf. That's a great stress reliever if you don't take it seriously. That's, yeah, yeah. If, you just got to re- realize <laughs> you're not a great golfer, so don't count your strokes. It's about going out and, um, you know, again, my, my, my kids have gotten into it, so that's that's four hours, five hours, of, and my wife likes to ride along, so that's perfect, and that's just our time. And that's awesome. I can't wait for that. My kids are five and a half and three and a half. They're oh, not that's a blast. Year of that. Yeah, not, not there yet, but they will be. They're close. Yeah. Awesome. I uh, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks. Hey, thank you guys. Time. I appreciate what, everything you guys do too. Trying, man. Trying to trying to move the needle. One of these days. Yeah, doing something different. Doing something different. That's what I like about it. You know, it's a different approach to things. Hopefully, we'll be working together on all kinds of stuff in the future. Absolutely. Um, as we really map out how we're going to take care of our state. I'll give a plug for our class because um, something you're talking about with regard to the clinicians and people to trust. So our course is going to be in three parts. The first part is an introduction to gun culture. The second part is an introduction to cultures that are traditionally self-stigmatizing away from mental health care. And we're going to have police um, or law enforcement broadly, physicians and military talk to the clinicians about what they need to know going in so that by the time you get to, you know, part one, part two, um, we should be building a, an ever increasing pool of clinicians across the country who are reasonably minimally competent to welcome in someone from law enforcement and not, uh, be asking weird questions or being judgy. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully as this thing progresses, we can, um, we can grow our, our capacity for those trusted people. And, and our website's going to have a little, like um, it's going to have a, a list of people across the country. You know, you can search by zip code or whatever. And um, the clinicians themselves can hang on their profiles on social media or in their email signatures, little badges that say, you know, walk the talk America trained or certified. Uh, so that'll be a, an indicator that the, the broader law enforcement community can be like, Oh, you did their thing. I, I know you're not going to be weird when I come in. Right. Yeah. So that's that's one thing that we're hopeful for that, you know, down the road, I think we'll open up some of these doors, too. That's awesome. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. It's exciting. Well, uh, Sheriff Darren Balaam of the Washington County Sheriff's Office, uh, thank you very much for coming in. Learned a lot. Um, Every time I think I know something, I, uh, I learn more and it keeps me humble. So thanks for sharing everything. Thanks for being so emotionally intimate and demonstrating that it is possible to um, emote as a, as a man, as a law enforcement officer, as a human being, and still have the world keep turning on the other side. Um, on behalf of Arms Corps, which is one of our uh, title sponsors, thank you very much. Check out armscore.com. If you want, if anybody's out there who wants to sponsor us and wants to knock Armscore off that pedestal, we will take your money. Uh, and, uh, and on behalf of Zephyr Wellness and, and our Walk to Talk America family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye. Look, if I open up, I know that there's maybe a few things I just need to talk to somebody about and, and, and just fix it, tweak it.